You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our sermon this evening, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. We'll read the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 in Thessalonians. Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you brothers are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep But let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Our text this evening comes from the letter of Paul to Titus chapter 2, the verses 11 through 14. The Apostle Paul is writing to Titus there under the the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, he's been writing to Titus about what Titus is to teach to various groups of people in the church. And then he offers this summary statement here at verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as we sit here this evening... On the threshold of a new year, perhaps you're thinking back of the year that was, 2012, or perhaps you're, you're thinking ahead of the year that will be, 2013, and you're wondering, 
what will this year bring? Perhaps if you're practically minded, you're thinking, what will I be doing in this year to come, 2013? It's a new year before us, a new year with with hopes and dreams and aspirations. They all lie before us. What will 2013 bring for God's people? What will God's people bring to 2013? This 2013 year of our Lord. What will our Lord bring? Will he return? Regardless of what we will do in this new year, From our text this evening, we learn that whatever we are pursuing, one thing that we need to be pursuing along with that is study. We need to be pursuing study. We're called to be students. We're not all going to go to school in this year to come. I see lots of children here this evening. You're going to be going to school soon enough. Few people are shaking their heads. <laughs> It'll come. We may not all go to school, but we are, we all will be students. Now why, you may ask, especially if you were one of the ones shaking your heads at me, why must we be students, especially in times like these? Especially in times that, that we live in. Especially in in times of of turmoil and tumult, in times of of natural disaster and global upheaval and recessions and unknowns before us. In his essay, Learning in Wartime, C.S. Lewis addressed students during World War II. And he laid out for them why he thought it was necessary for them to continue studying English and history and biology and geography, even while Europe was at war. And the people of England, where C.S. Lewis was addressing these students, were in the very thick of World War II. Many people were asking at that time, what's the point of going to university or of sending young men and young women to university when we should be sending them all to the front lines against the Nazis in order to topple Hitler and his regime? As Lewis says, isn't studying during wartime a bit like fiddling while Rome is burning? Or as someone else has said, isn't it like polishing the brass handrails on a sinking ship? Well, as Lewis goes on to answer that question, why study during wartime, he sets it into a larger context, a context that resonates with the passage before us this evening. He says to his audience, war is nothing new. And we might say this evening, natural disasters, conflict, world events, these are nothing new. Conflict has been here all along. World tragedies, natural disasters, large-scale calamities, they are always with us in this broken and fallen world. If we were to wait until all of these were over, until we began to start some good endeavor, like studying biology or history, then we would never get started at all. 
we would never accomplish anything. In a sense, students are always studying during wartime. And that's a good thing. We will not all go to school, brothers and sisters, but we are all called to be students. This evening, the word of God calls us, even as time marches on and as trials and tribulations grip not only our world at large, but as we know, our families, our loved ones, our personal lives. The time for us is to give ourselves to study. But not necessarily the study of biology or history or geography, but certainly for all of us to give ourselves to the study of God's grace. Learn about God's grace. And as students of God's grace in the times that we live in, we are called to get to work and to do what is good. That's our theme for this evening As students of God's grace, do what is good. As we stand on the threshold of a new year, be a student of God's grace and set yourself in this year to come to doing what is good. As Paul says these words to Timothy, he tells us that we are to learn how to say no. We're to learn how to say no. We're also to study when to do good. And finally, most importantly, we must ace why to do good. So in the first place, as students of God's grace, doing what is good, we we need to learn when to say no. In this text before us this evening, as we've already said, Paul is is placing what he said already in chapter 2, the verses 1 through 10, into their, their proper theological context. He's told Titus what to teach to various groups in the church. And then after that, he says, now this is why they must learn. So he summarizes what they must learn. And he adds to that the foundation of why they are to learn these things and why Titus is to teach these things. And he begins then in our text with the why. Why ensure that God's people are good students of God's will and ways? Well, it's because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Let's take that into parts and understand what that says. The grace of God that brings salvation is basically another way of saying the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is certainly referring to when he speaks about the grace of God that brings salvation. He's talking about that world-changing event in which the Son of God became flesh, became man, lived on this earth, this very earth that we live in, taught in all godliness, lived in all righteousness, and died on the cross for the sake of his people. And then three days later, rose again victorious over death, victorious over the grave, and vindicated in the sight of all the world that God's salvation was complete. 
This work of Jesus Christ is the essential display of the grace of God. The work of Jesus Christ is the grace of God which brings salvation. Yes, that work of Jesus Christ brings this all-encompassing new reality for the people of God. Salvation for all those who will believe in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, this grace of God bringing salvation, has appeared to all men. Of course, Jesus Christ himself didn't appear to all men in this in the world. What this phrase is speaking about is the universal, the worldwide scope of the work of Jesus Christ. That his work on the cross is to be for the whole world. That that gospel, that good news of what Jesus Christ is to go out to the whole world. That it is to be proclaimed to the whole world that Jesus Christ has paid the price for sin. And that you must repent of your sins and believe in him. He didn't come just for Israel. He didn't come just for those who have grown up warming the pew in a church. He didn't come just for those who who benefit from the Reformed faith. He came for the whole world. For the whole world. And He calls the whole world to repentance before Him and to faith in Him. And His work will not be complete until the whole world for condemnation or for salvation, is affected by Him. Brothers and sisters, we need to keep that in our minds as we step into a new year. That this gospel work, this work of preaching the good news, of bringing the good news to the ends of the earth, is not complete. And so we continue to have a calling right in front of us. A mission calling. We have a calling at the ends of the earth. We have a calling in our own front yard here in Langley to bring the gospel. And so this grace of God that brings salvation, this grace of God in sending Jesus Christ into the world provides the the impetus, the, the motivation for why we are to live the way we are to live, to why we are to do good deeds. This great work of God in sending Jesus Christ, it teaches us and instructs us in how we are to live. We've already mentioned one way in bringing the good news, being engaged in this mission of proclaiming Jesus Christ. But there's more as well. Jesus Christ is not only our Savior, but as our Savior, He's also our teacher. And if He's our teacher, that means that we're the students in fact, part of what the word disciple means. To be a disciple of Jesus Christ means to be a student of Jesus Christ. And so, we need to be eager to learn. We need to be eager to learn in the first place, as Paul says here, to, to know how to say no. Now, all good students know this. If you're going to apply yourself to study, if you want to do well in school, then there's certain things you have to avoid. You can't study everything, for one. And for another thing, 
Some things that you engage in are not going to be helpful for school. If you're in university, you've probably seen it. Maybe you've experienced it yourself. There's a certain lifestyle that's detrimental to learning the good things that you're supposed to be learning at school. And so the grace of God teaches us to say no to what? To ungodliness and to worldly passions. What are these things, ungodliness and worldly passions? Well, the first ungodliness, we have to realize as we try to understand this word that Paul is writing this to Titus and Titus is teaching this to the church. So he's teaching this to Christians. So ungodliness is not the same thing as atheism. Atheists don't join the church. They stay away from the church. So Paul isn't talking about atheism when he's talking about ungodliness here. He's talking about instead what you might call practical atheism. So not a formal atheism where you outright deny the existence of God and you have logical proofs for why you don't believe that he exists. But rather practical atheism is where you you confess to believe in God, but you live as though he doesn't exist and as though he doesn't care what you do with your life. That's ungodliness. Now, for examples of what ungodliness might look like, you probably know already what this ungodliness might look like. But for examples, we can go to the second thing we are to say no to, and that is worldly passions. Worldly passions. Because the world is the place where God is denied. And his existence is denied. And where people live as though he either didn't exist or he doesn't care how they act. And so worldly passions also capture this sense of ungodliness. They're the values and desires of an age in a society that rejects God. And there are all sorts of examples of worldly passions and and of ungodliness. For example, we can think of the worldly attitude cited by the Apostle Paul. Eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's the worldly passion that's alive and well in our world today. It's alive and well this evening. Eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow doesn't matter anyways. Or we can think of what Paul said in this letter that he wrote to Titus chapter 3. Worldly passions are things like malice, envy, hatred, so discord in in relationships between people. This is the way that the world acts. These are the passions that the world acts on. We could add to these the ones that Paul lists, for example, in Romans 13, drunkenness, sexual immorality, which we also read about in 1 Thessalonians. Or we could add the the worldly desire of greed, the desire for money, the pursuit of possessions. That's a worldly passion. Or the worldly pursuit of popularity and approval in the eyes of men. All of these exist in a context in which either God is rejected or people live as though God doesn't matter anyways. And so they seek their value, their satisfaction, their salvation in these these creatures and these things like money and possessions and and other people and self-satisfaction. 
But we are taught by the grace of God to say no to these things. We are those who know God and who believe in him. Now, some of these things for you are easy to say no to. Some of you are sitting here this evening and and you're thinking, I can't even imagine getting drunk tonight. That's easy to say no to. And others are thinking, I, I, greed is not an issue for me. That is not a problem at all. A part of being a good student, however, is not thinking only about the, the worldly passions that are easy for us to avoid, but considering those that are harder for us to avoid. Thinking of those passions in particular, which we struggle with, which are a temptation for us. In what particular way am I live or am I prone to live as though Jesus Christ has not come into the flesh to pay for my sins? How do I live? In what way am I tempted to live as though God doesn't exist? How and where have I assumed a practical atheism in my life? And this time of New Year's is actually an excellent time. It's always an excellent time, but this time as well. An excellent time to put this into practice, to examine your life. Examine your life. How are you living? What are your plans for this evening? Tonight may be a test case for you. How are you living? Are you planning to get drunk tonight? Are you planning to live this evening later after you leave from here as though God doesn't exist or doesn't care how you live? You need to say no to those passions. Or tomorrow. How are you going to act when you wake up tomorrow and you're tired and you're grumpy? Are you going to respond to your children, to your wife, to your husband, to your friends with anger, with impatience? Say no to those worldly passions. Are you making the most of this time that you have? Perhaps you have some time off. Are you making the most of this time off for God's glory? Or or is greed driving you to neglect your family and your friends in the pursuit of more money or more possessions? And so you don't have time for time off. You've got to keep working, working, working and earning. Will you adopt the God doesn't exist attitude of the world as you head back to work in a few days? So this is a good time for us to examine our own lives. Where do we need to say no? Or is that world-changing event of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that also changing your life? Is the grace of God teaching you how to say no to ungodliness so that more and more it becomes easy to say, no, I don't want to pursue that anymore. That's not pleasing to God. That's not consistent with the grace that has appeared to bring salvation to all men. Is the grace of God teaching you how to say yes to godliness and righteousness and self-control? If so, then you are living in a wonderful time, brother or sister. We need to be aware of the times. We also need to study, as we'll see when to do good. Now, of course, as we say this, this is not to say that there is a time to do good and a time to do bad or something like that. But 
What we realize, as Paul writes here and in many other places as well, is that our doing good has a lot to do with what time it is, with the times that we live in, the great eras, the great epochs of time. Paul is speaking about here of being aware of the times, of the great eras of history. Yes, we need to be students of history from a biblical perspective. Now, on New Year's Eve, we have a good sense of the passing of time, don't we? An old year is, is almost gone. A new year is almost here. We, we stand almost with one foot in one year, one foot in the other. The, the good and the bad of this past year are on our minds. Whatever we are to expect from the year ahead is also with us. And so we're very aware of the times. And in fact, we stand right in the middle of these two times as we sit here this evening on New Year's Eve. And so this serves as a good analogy to a biblical view of the times that we as Christians live in. Because we live in one age which is passing away. And we also live in another age which is still coming. The old age is passing away, just like 2012. There will be a day tomorrow, on 2012, is no more. Same with the old age. Now, this old age that we live in is the age that's characterized by sin and death. It's the age in which most of our world lives, and it's where their desires are focused. This is the age over which Satan rules as as prince, and he darkens the hearts and the minds of unbelievers in their wickedness. Now, for believers... This is not the age that defines us, but yet we do still live in this age. We still feel the effects, that is, of this age. Just like the people in New York are still feeling the effect, and they still would be feeling the effect tomorrow of Hurricane Sandy. Just as Egypt is still feeling the effect of the Arab Spring, just like the people in Newtown, Connecticut, are still feeling the effect of those horrible shootings, so we, too, still feel the effects of all those events. We feel the effects of the old age, this age that is passing away. As a church, as brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have experienced the effects of this passing away age in this past year. We've experienced death in our midst. We've experienced sin. We've experienced struggle and hardship. We've experienced broken relationships broken families. We've experienced physical setbacks, physical decline, and a host of other realities of the present age in which we live, the age which is passing away. Because as Christians, we also live in the new age, the age to come. Even now, today, we live in this new era. We live in the time, as Paul describes it, begun by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross and rose from the grave, he began this new age. A new age for all those who believe in him. But this age has not yet reached its fullness. We experience the blessings of this this new time, this new era. They're communicated to us through God's word and by the spirit of God. We experience repentance and joy and new life and holiness and unity. 
And we've experienced all of those things as a congregation in this past year as well. And praise God for them. But yet we know also all too well that we don't yet experience these in full. They're here, but there's still so much more to them. And so this new age is still an age in so many ways that we're waiting for, that we hope for, that we we long for an eager expectation. We long for, as Paul says in our text, the blessed hope. Hope because we don't fully grasp it yet. Blessed because that characterizes our hope. It's, it's the hope of the fullness of the blessings of God secured for us by Jesus Christ. The blessings of eternal life, of, of living in the presence of God, of being able to see with our eyes and experience with our, our whole self the glory of our Father in heaven and His Son and the Holy Spirit. And the crucial event of this new age, this coming age, will be the appearing of Jesus Christ. The inaugural event with His death and resurrection. The next step is His glorious appearing of Jesus Christ Himself. We read about that in 1 Thessalonians. When He will return from heaven to earth, bringing heaven and earth together, applying judgment to the world, condemnation for some, but salvation for all those who put their faith in Him. And, and this, this one whom we are waiting for is described beautifully here. It's, it's the appearing, it's the glorious appearing, and then see it there in verse 13 of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yes, He is our God, and He is our Savior. He fulfills those two characteristics that we know to be characteristic of our God, that He is great, and that he exerts his, his mighty power for the salvation of his people. And so on that last day when he returns, he is going to exert his great power for our salvation finally and totally and completely. He's going to take Satan. He's going to take all the demons. He's going to take all those who align themselves with Satan and the demons. He's going to take death and he's going to cast them all into the lake of burning fire to be there forever. While all those who align themselves with Jesus Christ, who believe in him and who are faithful to him, will enjoy the, the completion and the climax of their salvation. And so we live in the light of this coming age. It's like this evening, we, we wait for the day to come. Maybe you'll even be up late enough to see the day coming. That, that first light of dawn, we live in that age. We, we live in the first light of dawn, not yet seeing the sun, but knowing that it is coming and it's coming ever nearer toward us. It's already shining, but it's not yet in full view. As Paul says in Romans 13, the night is almost over and the day is almost here. We long, we hope, we dream for this day. We know it's coming. And so the calling for us in this time is to get to work 
doing good. Knowing these times that we live in, Paul says, as we can see in our text, it's time for us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's how we're called to live today. We're called to live self-controlled, sober lives, fitting in this festive time of the year. See, many live in this present age and they seek to escape from its pain, its hardship. And so they look to alcohol and drugs as a way of of getting rid of that pain. Others look to pornography or entertainment as a way of getting rid of the pain, of escaping somehow the reality of living in this present age. But we know that this age is almost over. And in fact, we already live in the new age. We are equipped with the Holy Spirit. And so we can control those worldly passions. And we can live soberly. In sober hope and expectation of the time that is coming. And we can also live upright, righteous lives. We know God's law as God's people. We know the right way to live. God teaches us it in His Word. As students of God, we learn how to live righteous lives in this world. And so we can pursue that positive direction that God gives us for our lives. Loving Him. Loving our neighbor, putting our hands to work in our callings, using the unique gifts that God has given us for the glory of his name. That's how we live upright, righteous lives in this present age. We serve in God's kingdom. We put our hands to work. We don't wait around twiddling our thumbs for the day to come. No, God says the day is coming. You know it's coming. Now get to work. I still have things for you to do. I still have a family for you to raise. I still have houses for you to frame. I still have young children for you to teach in school. Whatever situation it is that you're called to serve in, God equips you by His Holy Spirit and by His grace to continue to serve Him in this present age. And finally, he calls us to live godly lives, living in such a way then that we, we understand and, and acknowledge and live in the presence of our God, not in a way that, that rejects him or lives as though he doesn't exist, but live in such a way as though knowing, acknowledging that he does exist. And so you love the assurance that he's with you, no matter how you're spending this evening, you're blessed with the knowledge that he is your God when you're on the computer late at night and there's a temptation for you to sin. You're you're helped by him when you face a difficult trial that looms on the horizon for you on this evening. You know that you won't have to turn to worldly means of of coping. As you deal with pain in your life. You know that you can always live in such a way that acknowledges that God not only exists, but that he cares for you, that he loves you, that he blesses you, and that he keeps you. That's living a godly life in the presence of the grace of God. And so our future hope lights our path, shows us the way to walk. And all of this is grounded in the vital and beautiful past. That's our last point. 
most important thing for us to know, brothers and sisters, is why. Why to do good. Ace, why to do good. I have to say, I don't know if the younger generation actually understands what it means to ace something. This is language that I've used. Some of you are familiar with it. But it means do very well. Get an A, right? Ace, A. So you have to do very well, do the best at knowing why to do good. You have to ace the most important things. And the most important thing for us to know now is what has already been accomplished for us by Jesus Christ. The most important thing for us to know is what is already done. Yes, we have to know what to do, but even more, what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so we pick up Paul's train in verse 14. Jesus Christ, our blessed hope, the great God and Savior, is the one who already in the past has given himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jesus Christ has already done this. He has given himself to redeem us from all wickedness. That is, he came to this earth, he took on our flesh, he lived a perfect life so that he could die as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. So that he could die as a man for the sins of man, for the sins of mankind, for men and women. We were lost and dead in sin. We had no way of obtaining our salvation from God. The only thing that we deserved as humans was God's condemnation and wrath. We were enemies of God, fighting against Him. But God in His love has obtained salvation for us by placing the condemnation that was for us on His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And Jesus Christ's work on the cross is finished. And so that work of atonement is paid for. And so your sins are forgiven. They're not held against you. You're no longer at war with God when you believe in Jesus Christ. Instead, you receive what Jesus Christ has earned for us God's love and the gift of eternal life with God. That gift, that blessedness for which we hope is already ours through Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus Christ has done in redeeming us. He saved us from from wickedness and from rebellion against him. He's brought us into a new reality. He's restored us to our Father in heaven. But God, Jesus Christ, has done more as well. He's not only our Redeemer, but He has brought to us an all-encompassing salvation. That is, in redeeming us, He's brought us into a new reality, and He is continuing to work out that salvation in our lives even now. He is purifying for Himself a people to be His very own, His own prized and and special and treasured possession. Just like that beautiful language of the book of Exodus. God calls the Israelites His treasured possession. We are that treasured possession of Jesus Christ. 
And he's purifying us so that we more and more will reflect his holiness and his righteousness in our lives. So that more and more as we do good, we will truly do something that is good. We will do the very acts of God on this earth. Yes, this is the grace of God that is teaching us as we head into a new year. He not only redeems us from the front lines of the enemies fighting against God, but he brings us into his church. He brings us together. He brings us into his family as sons and daughters of his. And he trains us to be good and faithful soldiers in the fight, not against him anymore, but for him. The good fight of the faith. The good fight against worldly passions and against the devil and against all the enemies of God. And so as he trains us, brothers and sisters, we must learn. As disciples of his, we are to be disciples. As he teaches us, we are to be students. Students of godliness. Students of God's grace. Students of the love and kindness of God, our Savior. And so, as we look forward to a new year, let us look forward together in hope, joy, in longing, in expectation. Let's study the grace of God. Let's grow in the grace of God each day of this new year that He gives to us. And let's be very eager to do what is good. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.